This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and our guest this week is Dan Bailey. Dan has been the drummer for Father John Misty for the last five years and is commanding a busy session schedule from his personal studio in Southern California. He is also the creator of The Bailey Method, a three-part video tutorial on recording and tuning. He's offering a 25% discount for Working Drummer Podcast listeners through the end of January. Go to drichardbailey.com and use the promo code WDP. This episode is sponsored by Sure Microphones, and they've teamed up with Focusrite to offer the new Drummer Bundle Track Pack. This is Focusrite's Scarlett 18i20 USB audio interface paired with Shure's DMK5752 bundle, which is three SM57s and the Beta 52 kick mic, all on sale right now for $899. Coincidentally, I have that Scarlett interface. I got it about six months ago, and I gotta say, it is a great piece of gear. If you're not quite ready to dive into using separate preamps, this preamp and interface in one is a great option. It's compact and solidly built with full and transparent sound. It's been a great vehicle for me to learn the nuts and bolts of tracking, and I'm getting some really high-quality results in the process. I also recently got that mic bundle from Shure. Obviously, the 57 and the Beta 52 are indispensable for recording drums, and you'll hear Dan and I talk in this interview about how middle-of-the-road workhorse gear like this is more than capable of professional quality sounds and, in fact, is often the best choice. Check out the link in this episode's show notes to learn more about this great deal from Shure. Last week, we released our 300th episode. Please check it out if you haven't already, and there's also a special video version on YouTube. That episode was when we introduced Air Gigs as a new sponsor. We're really excited about this. The timing was perfect considering how much home recording we're all doing. So we recorded a series of segments with founder David Blacker about what Air Gigs is and how drummers can best utilize this platform. We'll be featuring one of these segments each week for the next few weeks, but you can get access to them all at once with a donation on Patreon. As little as $1 a month gets you access to this and all the other professional development content we've put up there from our former guests. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer. So let's hear the second of these segments now. Last week, David gave us an overview of Air Gigs, how it started, what it is. And this week, he's talking about how to set your rate, your price on Air Gigs. So let's check that out. Can you talk about uh, how musicians on Air Gigs go about setting their prices for their services? We don't really get involved with how a musician prices themselves. And and the important thing, I think, to remember uh, with Air Gigs is that it's it's a remote session, so it's not just about playing. It's about so if somebody's getting hired, say as a drummer, they're not only being hired for their you know for their skills you know at playing, but their production skills and what they're bringing to that side of the equation. So it's kind of the the marriage of those two things that comes together, and so that's a unique entity. You know, a, a remote session is different than an in-person session in that way cuz you know the 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 client is getting both the musician and the engineer in one and right. in most cases sometimes people team up you know with studios or locally or whatever they're doing less so now obviously 
but um but so that's really the 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 components um you know we always encourage people to to charge what they feel they need to walk away with from a session and to think about all the things that that are involved like they're going to pay you know taxes on the on that money they might get a you know like most of the sessions go great like 90% of the sessions i would even say 95% of sessions go smoothly or you know there's a friendly cancellation before it goes you know too far or something like that mm-hmm. right right 5% will will be you know a problem and <laughs> either that that problem will be you know a long drawn out session or you know that those are the things we always tell musicians to think about when they're pricing themselves because those things happen so if you don't factor those in you might get sort of blindsided by those and but beyond that we definitely don't want to be in a position to say this is a this is what you need to charge or this is what you're worth you guys know what you're worth what you you know and it's and it's an experimentation process as well trying to find the right offer that's connecting with people so all that to say is we don't really have too much advice on how to price yourself but more those are the things to think about when pricing yourself Right. So you, you led me smoothly to my next question, which is, uh, you know, what kind of uh, protections does air gigs offer for buyers and sellers through, throughout the process? Let's start with the buyer. In this case, you know, for a buyer, we're there to make sure, obviously, that no one goes dark on them, that they, you know, that they get everything that they were promised in terms of the, the uh, you know, the terms of the gig. And then, um, and providing a certain, a sort of referee role if things get sticky or, or challenging, you know, um, and then a lot, very same for the seller side. Like if a seller is, um, you know, uh, pricing themselves, they don't have like really open-ended terms, like, you know, 20 revisions and uh, unlimited, you know, (laughs) uh, money back guarantee and all that stuff then they're guaranteed payment, you know? So like we're, we're sort of, I would say a kind of referee with, with the interest of trying to facilitate the smoothest possible remote recording session for both parties and going to bat for either party when we feel maybe one side is like, you know, sort of lagging a little bit. Like, you know, there are cases where, you know, a buyer will be, you know, not sending the tracks the need, you know, that, that a seller needs. Well, we're going to jump in there and say, look, you know, you need, you need to move this along in a timely fashion. And so we're, we're always trying to think about it from a community standpoint. How is this, you know, our, our, how do we curate the best kind of flow for, for members, I guess. Right. And I noticed it's all through the air gigs platform. It's not like you're sending them your Venmo or, or whatever it's, you know, in into into air gigs out of air gigs exactly and exactly and there's you know one of the things is that a client can contact you in advance of placing an order so it's always important we say every once in a while someone will start work before an order has actually come in and usually even in those cases it goes fine because most of the people you know we keep a pretty close eye on you know people doing funny stuff on the site but like if you know, it's always good to wait until payment has been confirmed because then you know 100%, you know, 
you know, it's hard after the fact because anything could happen if you st if you do the work and then you're like, I haven't been paid. Well, you should always wait until, you know, an order, uh, you get notified from us that, that the client has actually placed the order. There's a component that, especially as a musician, as an individual and, and drummers specifically, we sometimes have our fee that we ask for for a song. So when we go to a session, like, hey, how much do you charge for, you know, a song? So we're going to do three this day in this studio. So you give them the, your price. But with air gigs, something to keep in mind is, you know, time is money. And not only are you giving your performance, but you're also, if you need to set up, if you need to go in and track, I mean, you are being engineer, you are being all these other things. And then you have to export stems and you have to do this stuff, things that you don't have to do when you're in the studio. You go in, you play, next song, you know, and then the next one. So these are things to keep in mind when you're determining your price structure. Absolutely. Good, good point. Very, very true. You know, when you're determining how many revisions you're going to provide, you know, what's your policy for, for retakes, you know, does that require a new booking, all those things, the more clarity you can bring to those things, you know, or the more foresight you can kind of think forward, uh, you know, that's really, it encourages bookings, you know, because it's, it's clear for, for clients. Great stuff. Thanks to David for that. Again, if you want to access all seven of these segments at once, go to patreon.com slash working drummer. So Dan Bailey is super active on Instagram, and it's a great mix of his killer playing with some very specific, very practical tips for getting different types of sounds in the studio. For example, his hack for getting that James Brown snare sound was one I tried recently, uh, which was to move your bottom snare mic down and away from the snare and then put a limiter on it and blend that into your mix. And guess what? It works. So he's really good at demystifying what can be the daunting task of recording drums. That's kind of what the Bailey Method is all about. There's also some great stuff here about Father John Misty, about building relationships, and much more. So hope you dig, Dan Bailey. I think where I want to start is uh, this this thing you put up in Instagram stories uh, recently, um, and you're you're super active on Instagram, um, both with sort of like instruction and and Q and A stuff, and just uh, content of your playing and um, just, and te yeah. techniques and everything. But um, you put up this thing that said, uh, "I see a lot of quote everybody has gear now and offers remote work. What do I do?" Unquote questions. Right. It's about your playing. It always is. People don't come to me for my engineering. They come to me because I'm good at engineering my playing. All the gear in the world can't fix bad playing. Um, and this really struck me because, like, we've um, we've talked so much on the podcast about, like, you know, finding your voice on the drums and leaning into what you really are. Um, but I'm kind of at the beginning of this journey, as, as I would imagine a lot of drummers are, of like translating that identity into your small studio at home and being able to capture that. Because it's easy to like go on stage and, and feel like yourself and, and, you know, put that out. 
capturing yep. that in the studio, particularly when you're engineering yourself, is just a right. huge challenge. So I just wanted to ask you to kind of like expand on on that idea and and what your journey with that has been like. Yeah, I, I just I just think I see so often that that thought process of like, oh, once I get X a piece of gear, this whole thing's going to open up for me, or as soon as I get this, the gigs will come, and that's that's not how this works at all. It's it's being able to adequately engineer yourself, obviously, you know, is the name of the game right now. But it's about like, if you're pointing microphones and gear at playing, that doesn't matter. What's the what's the point? You know, it's like people come to you because of your voice on the instrument, and and it's ne- it's a necessity to be able to record yourself. But it's not. They're not hiring you as an engineer who kind of plays drums. You're a drummer who kind of engineers. Right. No matter what level you're on, you should always be a player first because that's the it's the sound source. If you're pointing microphones at something that sounds good, it's gonna sound good. Right. If if your playing's all out of whack and say it's in a you're in a in a rock context and you're just right hand your prom, you know primary hand is just super dominant and you're just crushing that ride cymbal, there's nothing you're gonna do that snare drum mic to get that ride cymbal out of there. You yeah. know, it's just it, it's all at the playing. So it's so much of this is just people think it's the it's the gear and the engineering technique, and it's you save yourself so much work on the front end. It's all about doing it as you're playing the thing. So when you first started doing this, like what? Um, what issues did you sort of encounter about, um, you know, learning how to use your gear properly to to capture the the playing that you knew was good? I yeah, it's 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 interesting because I feel like if you're a younger player, the world you live in, this has always been the way it's been. Right. Like if, if you're in the last ten years, remote sessions have been going. That's been half the work in the world has been remote for yep. a while. Yep. So. So if you're new, I, I think that it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm 39. So if you're a little younger than me, I grew up for the first 10 years before that was an option. So I was just on normal sessions with engineers and stuff. And so obviously I, I think I got to bypass a lot of that because I got to be around good engineers so much that I just kind of osmosis picked up tips. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, and it, it, it did give itself like a, a, a little bit of a different vibe of, when you're bouncing between what you're doing at home and then going to a real studio and doing a session and then coming back to what you're doing at home, it can make this so like your, your, your self-esteem about your own recording can be so clear <laughs> right. because like, well, the stuff I'm doing in my spare bedroom doesn't sound like ocean way room B, you know, like, well, of course it doesn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's just the other half of the, of the thing now, you know, it used to be, you just had to work on your playing and you would show up to a session and there was an engineer who had only worked on the engineering part. And now it's just, it's, it's part of the, you know, the playing, obviously the, you can't fix bad playing. Right. But also, you know, good playing recorded poorly. Isn't that much more usable. It's more usable, but it's not that much. (laughs) Right. Well, to a certain standard to be able to be manipulated and all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I was talking with a, a friend of mine, former guest on the on the podcast named Giuliano Mangucci, uh, who's an old friend of mine from Kansas City. Um, and he talked like when I first started doing this, like this, you know, my home studio here is mainly the result of COVID and just like having the time to just be in here and figure shit out and get shit going. Um, but right. he kind of advised me like at the beginning of my process, he was like, like, engineering and playing drums at the same time is the least efficient way to <laughs> to do either of those things so yeah, just like yeah. get ready for 
a lot of back and forth between the computer and the drums and the mics. And um, yeah. so, I, you know, I figured out some ways to kind of streamline that process and it's different for everybody. But uh, what are what are some of the ways that you've uh, sort of like smoothed out and, and maximized your flow in your studio? You know what I've started doing like this week, like the, maybe the last three things I've done and it's it's been totally great. I used to, you know, come in in the morning or whenever I was going to start, set up for the track, do the track, send files out all in a row. Uh, and obviously when there's time concerns, you have to, you know, it, it's, it's, if they have a deadline, you just send it out. I've started the first thing I do, if I'm coming in, you know, if I had something to do yesterday and I have something to do today, in the morning, I print the tracks for the previous day. Mm-hmm. So I, I print out files. So when I'm done playing, I leave it. And I come back the next day with fresh ears because I find that, you know, like any of us, we get in into Pro Tools or Logic or Cubase or whatever we use, and you start tweaking, you start EQing, you start moving stuff around. And at some point, you get so in the weeds, stuff you, you're starting to make stuff sound bad. You're, yeah. you're overcooked. So I find that, like, I just get, like, a nice usable sound, record the part, the next morning come in and do my, with, with fresh ears. I'm not, I don't have any adrenaline because I was just playing drums. You know, like, it just, come in with fresh ears, make your choices then. And even do like, I find it helps too if you can set up the night before, like set up and like get, you know, hit your kick, make sure your gains are all good. At least get it like pretty close so that you can walk in and start recording. Right. And that, that, those are some ways to kind of separate the engineer from the drummer in yourself. You yeah. Know, like, totally. Because if you're the left, right brain, how are you like worried about the kick phase, but also worried about did I build into that bridge the correct way? You know, it's <laughs> yeah, different. Man. Yeah. It's, and, and uh, I, I was actually just talking to a buddy that I, I, I've done. I've only done three in-person sessions since March because obviously the world's been shut down. Right. With the you know, COVID rapid test, and we're in the, they're in the tracking, or I'm in the tracking room, they're in the control room. We don't cross paths. That whole thing, and it's such a bizarre way to work. After, you know, I, I came off the road in November of 2019. I've just been home doing this. So mm-hmm. like, I'm already a year and a half into this, which is insane. Of yeah. Not touring. Uh, but. Yeah, it just being around an, another engineer makes me appreciate like, oh, I don't have to worry about any of that. I don't have to worry if the overheads are clipping. I don't have to worry that the, you know, it's like there's somebody in there watching my back the whole time and it's it's great. Right. Uh, it's, it's, but learning, learning to, to like divide your brain in that way. It's, for me, it helps to literally like set up and leave and come back and then come back as a drummer. And then when I leave and come back to print the files, I'm back as an engineer. That's right. how I've the kind of workflow I found that works for me at least. It's amazing how much we used to talk about um, like before COVID and before, you know, remote tracking was so prevalent, you know, we used to talk so much about the difference between uh, playing live and playing in the studio. And there, there are surely some differences, but on Mm -hmm. the other side of this, like you just said, you know, these days going to someone else's studio and playing feels more like, a live gig. It's like I show up, I play drums, I'm done. Right? <laughs> like yeah. compared to engineering your own session. Um and I liked what you were saying about just sort of compartmentalizing the 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 various hats you've got to wear um yeah. when you're engineering yourself because I've I've just like made myself crazy and and sent myself into like a coffee infused fever dream <laughs> haze trying to bounce back and forth between all of these um duties. And I've, like you said, I've, I've found it, I'm going to lean into this even more now that you've said it, but like, I found it super useful to just like spend some time, you know, placing the mics, getting the gain right, finding some sounds, 
just messing around and then leave the room and then come back some other time, lay the shit down, track it. And then some other time we're going to mix it. We're going to, you know, cause if you're trying to do all that shit at once or back to back, I just, I I don't have the bandwidth. I don't switch gears that that fast. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's, it's, and you, you know, it's obviously the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the more you like, you start to realize like the things that matter, the things you can like, it's like, ah, oh, the kick has sounded a little weird, but I'm mid take. And I don't want to think about that right now. I can, I can flip the phase in the box later. If I recorded it incorrectly, there are, you know, there are ways to not don't stop. If you're feeling the take, don't stop the take. Don't be thinking about that stuff. It, it's just such a, you know, a lot of it is, is our, our confidence in sending. We know we're going to be sending files to people that know more than us. Yeah. So like, I know that my stuff is going to get to a mix engineer who knows everything about measuring overheads and phase and all this stuff that I, I know, you know, he, he, he engineers everything and mixes records. And I engineered just me playing drums. Right. Those are two. I have a very high expertise at one little tiny corner of engineering and he knows about everything. So of course I'm always even, you know, I'll send in files and like, Hope I hope I printed those rooms right. Did I remember? Like, I'll still totally if I hear something back and be like, "Oh, is that was that on my end? Did I mess up?" You know, like a lot of that is just the a lot of this whole thing is just the the self awareness to realize that everyone has confidence issues with their recording. You know, like right, right. And I'm trying, I'm I'm trying to like uh, use you know whoever I'm sending it to as as a backstop, like. If, you know, whatever, whatever mistakes I'm going to, I'm going to get it as clean as I can. I'm just going to send them the highest quality thing that I can. And, and they're going to do whatever they want with it. And sometimes like if I know what they're going to do with it, um, then it kind of, uh, releases me from some of the pressure of having to send them a perfect recording. If they're going to process the fuck out of it. And like, I just, I'm, I'm recording some dub tracks for a friend of mine in Atlanta and, oh. and he's doing like wacky wing dings with just all the sounds. And I'm like, so whatever I send him, it's just going to like, you know. Oh, yeah. At, at that point, is it, does it feel good? Because it's going right. to hit a space echo. Who right. knows what's going to go on? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Does it feel, back to the original point, like, does it feel good? <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, you figure out most things. But if, yeah, if, if just, if a song has a bad drum performance, there's just no fixing it. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no hiding it's it's your foundational thing everything you track on top of bad drums is going to be bad it just like so you got to get the playing figure out the rest of it as you go you know yeah yeah um talking about uh you you also um in in answer to somebody's question they were like what mic should i buy and you were just like 57s just buy some sm 57s to start out with um and uh that got me thinking as well too like in my experience with this i I don't feel like my uh, studio expertise or my ears are yet worthy of like really expensive shit. <laughs> um, sure. Sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, sure. I, sure. I mean, I'm still learning. My rig still does more than I know what to do with it. Right. Like, and I, th- I think that that's, I mean, that's the point where most people are at. Most people don't need more gear. But, right. You know, like starting with 50, you know, that I think that was a question of somebody like, I am starting from square one. What should I get? Yes. And I was, you know what? At no point in life is having a couple SM57s not beneficial. Right. And like, they've been the same for 40 years. If you're not using them, you sell them for the, you know, 10 bucks less than you paid for them five years from now. It's, 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 yeah. They're, they'll all be useful as a tool, even when you quote unquote get better microphones. 
it'll always be like, man, I wish I had a 57 to just like drop in that kick drum and blow up, you know, something <laughs> I'm not going to hurt. You know, like there's, there's always use for, for things like that. So, I was doing a session well, I, a few I, years ago, like b- before I really knew anything about, um, you know, mics or, uh, anything going on in here, I was doing a session, um, and uh, my buddy Tony Terrabone was engineering it. And so I, I set up my drums. He set up some mics. Um, and he he tried two snare mics. And I don't remember what they were, but they were, they you know, they looked expensive. <laughs> um, sure. So he put one on there and he had me like play a little bit. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm not digging that. He tried another one. I don't remember what it was. Oh, I'm not digging that either. And he came back in the room. He was like, you know what we need on this snare drum? A fucking 57. <laughs> and e- even though... <laughs> Yeah, like even though, like I said, I didn't, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew what a fifty-seven was, but you know that that stuck with me. I was like, this guy has engineered platinum records, and right, and fifty-seven is good enough for him. Like, in fact, it's the best for him. And the other, and the other couple mics. I mean, like if they were, you know, say he had a a Sennheiser four forty-one and an AKG four fifty-one. Those were the two mics he was trying or something. Right. That are both four, five, six, seven hundred dollar microphones. It's like this. $89 microphone did the thing better. So it's not, it's not about better. It's what fits the situation. Right. And if it's going to have some, like some grain and some texture and some kind of shittiness that other microphones don't have, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, along those lines, like at, at what point in your process, um, did, well, I guess I have two questions about this when it comes to gear, whether it's a mic or a preamp or an interface or, or whatever, I feel like there's, um, there's a point of diminishing returns when a price a price increase of hundreds or thousands of dollars is only going to result in a very small improvement in the sound. For sure. So, like, at, at what point is that worth it, and for whom is that worth it? Right. Uh, actually, was just just talking to an engineer buddy uh, about this, and we were talking about like, say you want to uh, you want to spend you want to get a really nice snare mic preamp that you're going to run on snare most of the time. So you go like, you know what? I really like, I like a Neve 1073. It's like, okay. So you could get the 500 rack series, you know, like a great water, great river, whoever that makes a cool one for six, 700 bucks. And that's going to sound really good, but you could also spend 1400 bucks on a Brent Avril 1073. And that's going to sound 7% better. (laughs) And, or you could spend three grand on a vintage 1073. That might sound 7% better, you know, quote unquote, mm-hmm. but they just all sound different. You reach a certain point and at, you reach this plateau where everything's good. Right. And then now it's just difference. You're just at the salsa bar picking your hot sauce. <laughs> you know, like it, there, there are certainly things that, you know, a level of, you need a quality mic with a quality cable into a, into a clean, reasonable sounding preamp. There are certain levels you need to get to, to be able to do what I would consider professional tracks. Right. But you don't need to be buying a console and a, you know, $8,000 U47. And that stuff is un- completely unnecessary. And it's really just fitting the, the, the gear to your needs. You know, if you're, if you're, I always use him as an example because it's the dude who does this on the highest level that we all know. But if you're Aaron Sterling <laughs> and you're going to be doing tracks for Lana Del Rey in your studio, you need to have better gear than, you know, a dude who's a hobbyist, you know, like, but that said, if you're a, a dude who's a, a hobbyist or, or wanting to pursue this full time, but not, you're not doing it yet. If you're doing hundred dollar tracks for your buddies, you know, there's a different expectation right. and you can, and it's, and you know, and it, there you might be going for more vibe or like, you know, you're, you're not going for like high fidelity likely in that kind of circumstance. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, 
you know, if, if somebody gets called for a, you know, Victor Andrizzo gets called for an Ariana Grande track, they're going to expect a certain thing, you know? So it, it really does fit in your, your situation and the kind of work you're doing. But I think that people, people look at the gear list and don't really listen to what's coming out of that room. Mm. I, I've heard a lot of, a lot of great sounds from a lot of really pedestrian gear and a lot of really pedestrian sounds from a lot of, you know, tape op people would lose their minds here. So Again, it's the playing. If, if you're pointing stuff at, at a bad player, it doesn't, you know, what does it matter? Right, right. If the, if the player's feeling great and like, you know, and sounds good when you're standing next to the drum kit in the room, like that means he's balanced. That means his self mix is good. That means any microphone you place most any place is going to be usable, you know, and now it's just about matching the, the thing you're going for. Right. Right. How does how does that uh, mentality apply to your room? Like we've talked about, in, you know, investing in mics, investing in gear. What about investing in your room? Oh, I, I think it. I think the the space and the drum kit matter as much, if not more, than the gear. Uh, especially having I'm on. This is my fourth space I've had. You know? Huh. So, so now having worked in a bunch of different circumstances, uh, and you know, over and over and over, five days a week. So you really learn the spaces. It, it absolutely, I mean, like if you go back six months to my commercial space, I haven't changed anything about my rig. So like you can go listen to those sounds and go listen to what I, I do now. Uh, and even when I'm going after the same kind of vibe, it's very different sounding just because the space is so different. Mm -hmm. I think for, for most people, if you're, you know, looking to get into it or hobbyist or whatever, it becomes about kind of removing the influence of your space. That's when you're going to see foam, packing blankets, and that's totally, that's what, that's all gobos and traps do in studios. You're removing problems from the room. Mm -hmm. So for most people, if they're, if they're working out of their house, it's about killing the weird stuff in the room. Yeah. So it's deadening a lot of like, try to make it, you know, smaller and whatnot. Um, whereas when you get to more of a space, obviously when you're going to build a bespoke drum room, it becomes about, Hey, can we make the snare decay really nice? So it's not about being as dead as possible. Mm -hmm. You want some stuff. But until you get in a room with like, I mean, my room doesn't have a level ceiling. It doesn't have level walls. You know, it's built to be, it's not a rectangle. It's, you know, it's off like four and a half inches in one corner so that it doesn't have slap back and forth. Right. You know, it's take with, which, which a spare bedroom is going to have because it is a perfect square or yep. a perfect rectangle. Yep. You know? So, yeah, I, I think it, it becomes early on it's it's really about like taking out the weirdness out of your space and making it kind of more functional mm -hmm. and then you, and usually these things kind of go in hand in hand is as you become a better engineer you start working on more stuff and so maybe you need a better place and you you know you start to figure that out i mean that's how it, how it worked for me but i think the space absolutely matters and i think people don't pay enough attention to it i see a lot of at least just from when i fall down the rabbit hole of drum instagram <laughs> i see a lot of untreated rooms and it's just like Guys, this is, I don't care what's in your rack. Yeah. Like, you need that hobo above your kit, man. Like, that's going to help. Don't worry about your overhead mics. You're hearing slap off the ceiling. You get some coals in here, they're, they'll sound weird, too. Like, it, it's a, you got to deal with what you can deal with first. Make make what you have sound good, and then start worrying about spending money. You know? Yeah, and actually, I mean, that's, it's it's kind of, um, uh, uh, might be a little bit extreme, but it's it's a good reminder about, you know, buying the mics, buying the preamps, like spend that money on your room first. Right. Like, and you don't have to spend that much money. I mean, right. I, the amount of times I've seen hanging packing blankets as a permanent installed sound thing at a real studio, that's just buy a bunch of packing blankets, tack them to your ceiling. I guarantee you they will be 
500% improvement in your overheads if you're getting a weird slap or something. Yep. It's not it's not the gear and it's not the EQ curve that's going to fix that because they probably if your drum kit sounds weird in the room with the headphones off when you're playing it, it's going to sound weird to microphones too, you know. So like yeah, people I think people get kind of the cart in the head of the horse and start they whip out the credit card and start buying the fancy gear. Like you don't have the space or the kit where it needs to be yet, you know, like it's there's a there's a priority list to these things. Yeah, know? yeah. It's daunting, man. I like <laughs> and that's luckily doing stuff like that with you know deading your space is something you can do for like 60 bucks in an afternoon. Yep. It's literally just get a pack of packing blankets and a bunch of tacks or however you're gonna affix the stuff to the walls. And that absolutely will you'll see marked improvement in like an hour. We've been talking recently about the difference between networking for live playing and networking for session playing. Um, and as, as someone who's done a, a good deal of both, like, I, you know, where I am in my career, most of my career up to this point has been dominated by live playing. Um, sure. So now I'm having to do the legwork of like, you know, building out a session network and, and uh, figuring out how to make those contacts and et cetera. But what, what thoughts do you have on um, like, do you, do you feel that those two things are, are bifurcated the way I described? Well, I, I always find it funny that it, it feels like since like the eighties, we've had this, this, like when we, you know, in the, in the seventies, when it was Jim Gordon and Jim Keltner and, and you know, Steve Gadd, like no one thought about Steve Gadd. Oh, he's a studio drummer, but then he'd be on tour with Paul, you know, or Peter Gabriel, right. you know, it's like, or Paul Simon, sorry. Right. So it's like, is he a studio drummer? No, he's just a drummer. And you mm -hmm. hire him to play on a record, you hire him to do a tour. I've never, obviously, you know, the choices you make in your, your career kind of can tend to start you down certain roads to the point where you may become just a dude who only records, or you may become a person who is a member of a band and just kind of does that. And, you know, uh, I don't, I don't look at them as two different things. I, I look at it like I do, I play drums. And if you want that on your record or your tour, I'm your guy, you know, or like if you, if you like what I do, I'm the person, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, I don't, I've, I've, as far as I've never intentionally gone, I'm going to chase studio work or I'm going to chase live work. It's just always like, I, I found that if you kind of surround yourself with the stuff you're interested in, it kind of tends to find you, you know, like, and I don't, yeah. I, and I wish there was a, I, man, I wish there was a, there's a gear, there's a gig sign up list. And if you, you go sign, you put your name on it, the phone will start ringing, you know, right. But it, it's to take the opportunities as they come, you know, like, the only choice any of us really have is saying no to stuff we don't want to do. So right. <laughs> if, if something, if you keep saying yes to stuff you don't want to do, that'll eventually become the thing you do. So it, it, you, you got to kind of have a clear vision of what you do. You like, does this person want to be a studio player? Do you want to be a live player? Do you want to do a mix of both? You know, and like, I think so much of this can be helped by people having a better like idea of what it is they actually want. Not like, Oh, I want to play drums for a living. It's like, cool. What do you actually want to do? Mm -hmm. Do you want band? Do you want to record a bunch? Do you want, you know, like, do you want to write songs? Do you maybe want to be on the production end and you kind of play drums, but that's not the main thing. You know, like people need, if you don't know what it is you want to do, you don't know when you got there. So <laughs> just look at it like I, I've 
So hopefully that that's an answer to that question. But I've never specifically gone looking for anything in particular. I just have always been excited about drums and recording. You know, so the, those two things have kind of found me, I, I guess. You know, right. Stuck out. And so even though even though you didn't think of those two things as very different, like you're yeah. you're just you're playing drums in situations that you dig, right? Like you kind of put that out yeah. there and it, it attracted you. So even though you didn't think of those as two different things, do you find now that, uh, as far as the people hiring you and the people paying you, are those two different groups of people? Oh, it, it's definitely, I would say that between, you know, the last five years of being with, with Misty and then I, so I, I started just making when I would be recording, you know, like putting my cell phone up and dropping audio into iMovie in 30 seconds to make a little clip, the stuff I post online. I used to do that as like game tape and I, before I had a place to, to, to post them. So I would go like, I recorded this and I think it sounds really good. And 20 days later, I'm just going to thumb through this and go like, that did sound really good. Or like, Oh, I could have done that better. And, you know, it's practice like anything else, you know, recording is. Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry. I think I lost, lost the strain of where the original question. <laughs> no, just talk, talking about like you, you started uh, talking about uh, Misty and, um, just kind of oh, the, the, the two different I'm... two different sets of people that that hire you for these two different uh, roles. There's definitely a perception. I, I definitely get fewer calls for tours just because people know how much we tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like I haven't gotten many live calls since starting the gig. One just because I'm always busy, so people see me. You know, we've been touring so heavy; they know I'm not around. Um, so I think that kind of, as much as anything, kind of. I don't really get called for live work anymore because I think people assume I'm busy. Mm-hmm. So I think now the call, because of that, the calls I get are kind of exclusively studio. Well, and of course the pandemic, obviously having a, you know, a lot to do with that too. Right. But for this, uh, it's, it's so bizarre. The, just the concept of your, your, your career is beholden to people's perception of you, mm-hmm. you know, that, which is why saying no to stuff you don't want to do because of, people are going to know you by the things you surround yourself with. So if they go like when I was doing only contemporary Christian stuff in like 2004 and didn't dig it, it's because I kept saying yes to that stuff. And right. so those are the people, those that's where people know you from. So those are the calls you get. It's like to, if you want to change paths, you kind of have to say no to everything and kind of start over. Yeah. But I think if you're chasing the recording thing, it's like all, all I did was, when I don't have, when I didn't have something to work on and I wasn't on the road, I went to the studio and I practiced recording and I would post that stuff and I would send it to buddies like, Hey, what do you think about this? Hey, how's about this kick sound? Whatever engineer friends, producer friends. And you just let people know that's the stuff you're into. And then those are the calls you start to get, you know, you, you kind of just find the thing you're passionate about and start doing it. And you right. know, if, if you, it's, it's all dumb luck and breaks anyway, but sure. It, and it, I think so it, many of us, especially when we're young, like even, even if we have a, a clear idea of like what kind of music we want to play or what kind of drummer we are, or what kind of drummer we want to be, um, which, you know, not many young drummers really have a firm handle on that. I didn't, but even if you do from a professional standpoint, uh, they're, they're just like, what do you want to do? And, and it boils down to like, I, I want to play drums for money. That would, that would be yeah. great if I could play drums drums for money. And then, you know, like various opportunities of different sorts come at you to play drums for money. And like you said, if you keep saying yes to something, then right. that's going to be well, what ob- you do. And obviously early on, it's it's early on is the time to say yes to everything. Sure. Because you need the rep, you need to meet people, you need the finances. Like it, it's it's time to like 
grind when you're young. Mm-hmm. And it honestly doesn't matter what the kind of gig is. But that said, you, you'll, if, if your career is anything like mine, you'll find at some point that, I, I mean, I got married, I had kids, and I kind of went through a, a, a religious deconversion all at the same time. So <laughs> when, it was, when it was time, it was, it was time in life for me to move on because I was miserable and I was making people in that world miserable because I didn't want to be there. Mm. So it, it's, it's not like, you know, you, you just read, kind of read the road signs of life. You know, it's like, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. This doesn't feel right. I shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Or like, I really like this, this thing over here. I wish I could do it more, find ways to do it more. Like, yeah, it really is as simple as like, I don't, this isn't what I would prefer to be doing. I'd rather be working at Home Depot. Then I, you don't want to do that gig. And at some point, every, you know, at some point you, you get a certain age and, and other life stuff where gigs become that, where it's like, I'm not, the right fit for this. I shouldn't be here. Someone else, I'm taking someone else's seat. Someone else that needs to have this gig. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, else is in the, yeah. you know, in the, in the live world, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's easy to do. It's easy to, um, say like, I want to play this kind of gig. I want to play this kind of music and then just go to that place where those people are playing that kind of music. And if you show up there often enough, like you'll, you'll get worked into it. Right. Around. Yeah. Uh, yeah, be available. Yeah, yeah but with so, but with uh, you know, with recording, especially now, especially during COVID, um, I've found it's it's kind of the opposite. Like, there's no place to go, right? Right. And so, right. I mean, the place to go is like Instagram, but um, you know, you can follow people and you can do this and that. But I've I've tried to sort of like invert that equation where I'm putting myself out there in a certain context, like instead of going to a context that I want to be part of, I'm trying to like sure. put that context around myself in my room here so that all sure. of the, all of the playing that comes out of this room that I put on Instagram is the kind of thing that I want to be doing that I want to be known for. It's the kind of thing you want people to see in here. Yeah. Sure. Right. It's, it's the kind of thing you called for. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's tough sometimes because you know, the, the younger drummer mentality that's still there in me is like, you want to put out a huge variety of stuff because you can play jazz stuff. You can play funk stuff. Right. You, like there's, you know, a more modern drum sound. There's the old school vintage drums. Like I just want to cover all of these fucking bases. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's tough to resist that urge, but I'm feeling better and better about just keeping the focus narrower and just being honest with myself and everybody else about like, what kind of playing do you really want to do? Forget all the shit that you're, you know, merely capable of doing. <laughs> um, Kind of, and, it, and that and that stuff's useful. I mean, like I I, I went to college assuming I was going to be a shredder, and and then got to college and realized I'm like the 16th best player here, and <laughs> that isn't going to be the path for me. So I better just make the snare land in a comfortable place. You yeah. Know, like, so, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but all that stuff, like all, all the, I mean, you know, if you if you're one of those people that went to school who can play a bossa nova in seven, like it's not bad to be able to do. It's right. it'll make it'll make your bossa nova and four feel really comfortable because you can play it at odd time, you know? Uh, but yeah, I, I think that like the best thing that could happen for drummers is also like, I, you know, obviously we're, we're doing this with the backdrop of the pandemic and nothing's normal and such. But if you're, especially if you're really young and you, you're kind of finding ways to be, to be involved in something, I would even suggest I've watched four or five people I met as studio interns now be producers and engineers because I've, I've been doing this long enough. Mm-hmm. So as a drummer, 
if there's a studio or like a producer that works a bunch with a with a a, a real you know a studio where he has clients in and stuff, if they're looking for an internship, if they're looking like that stuff can't hurt you. You know, if you're like looking for something to do, you're going to meet artists, you're going to be around, you're going to learn how to record, you're going to like watch better, more seasoned drummers work. You know, like it's there's there's any number of the ways you know a ways in, but especially if I was in L.A. or Nashville. And I was really wanting to get into recording at 18. Even if I was a player, I might try to intern for somebody. Yeah. Because you're going to learn about mic placements and how to run Pro Tools and the whole, you know, the whole thing. It's it's not going to hurt, that's for sure. Right. And that that not only, um, you know, is is an education for you, obviously, but that's that's contacts, right? That's relationships. That's exactly. And, I mean, the cool, you know, the great thing about uh, the age we're in is just the, you know, unlimited amount of shit that you can learn from Instagram and YouTube and whatever else, but that's not a relationship. Right. Right. Totally. Well, and I, I was thinking about that the other day It's like, man, the way, you know, if you're a big John Mayer fan, being able to watch Aaron Sterling work is very cool. And like, man, if I, if it was 1993 and like Vinny Caliuta had an Instagram and I could watch him play on sting records, I'd lose my mind, man. Like, are you kidding me? Like we, we have so much more access and the curtain, the veil has been kind of parted. You can kind of see how it works. It's not this magic. You go to MI and then they place you on the Madonna gig. Like, right. you know, I thought when I was 12, you know. Uh, <laughs> it, so, I mean, the good part, the good part is that the, some of the, the, mis- the mystery has been lifted away, right? The mm-hmm. bad part is that you see that it's just, it's a job and it's, it's work and you have to treat it like a job. And this is not something you just sit around and wait for your phone to ring. This is like you have to be developing the skills so they're ready when you get the call. Right. And you're going to get the call because you've been developing the skills meeting people. Like I, I had a question uh, uh, for the, the Q&A I did yesterday, which was if, you, if, if I had my exact skills I had today, but no contacts, like if I was starting over, if an alien spaceship dropped me into the world and somehow I had met nobody in the 20 years I've been doing this, like how would I get work? And it's you, – you can't remove – talent and abilities you've developed from the people that taught you them. You know, like I'm an engineer because I worked with 30 incredible engineers over the course of 20 years, you know, like there's no, without knowing those people that also leads to work, I wouldn't have the skills in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's all, it's, it sucks that it's such a catch 22 and you know, you have to be good to get work, but to get work, you have to be good, you know, like, but it really is. It's, it's, it really feels like you kind of just merge onto the freeway in retrospect, looking back at my career, there was never like, you're not just automatically in the fast lane, but it's like, I'm not working much. Now I'm working a little bit. Oh, now I'm able to pay my bills. Oh, now it's a career. Right. You know, but in real time, it feels like, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? Nothing's (laughs) happening. It's so it's been six months, you know, like whatever it it really is just a war of attrition and you just have to outlast everybody. I'm not the best. I'm not the best drummer. I knew at 20, not even close. Yeah. 10 guys that don't play anymore. They were could play circles around me. Yeah. It just, it's, you you have to have, you know, but maybe those guys weren't good at answering their phone or weren't good about returning emails. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's what weren't re- good about hitting deadlines or being somewhere when they said they would be, you know, it's like, it's all that stuff that actually it's, you got to treat like a job. Right. Or maybe it's just not what they wanted to do ultimately. Or it's not what they actually wanted to do for sure. And, and I and think that, you, you and I are kind of in the same boat where like, this, this is what I want to do. Right. The, like there's, there's nothing else. There's no plan B. So, yeah. you, so that means like, I guess some people take that mentality, like there's no plan B. So I just have to just go balls to the wall every day and blah, blah, blah. But I'm more like, especially as I get older, I'm like, there is no plan B. So just 
relax. <laughs> like, yeah, let it happen. Like, it's take care of itself. Yeah. And, and that's the problem, too, about pushing too hard. And mm-hmm. why I sometimes worry about people who see this as a at music as a networking thing more than it actually. It really is. You're just actually fr- I'm actually friends with all the people I work with. Yep. I send them, I send, you know, post, you know, happy birthday to their kid when it's their kid's birthday on Instagram. You know, like we're yep. actually, my wife knows their wife. You know, like it, that's that's how this is. Networking can have such a bad connotation of of because that's just they can smell that desperation on you. That like I have to work, I have to make it, I have to make it. It's yep. like no one in the control room with that person. You got to chill. <laughs> no one can worry about like, hey, so what do you got next? You got another session next? Like, who, you got somebody play drums on it yet? You can't be doing like. And yeah. I did that when I was eighteen, and too. I got fired. I got not called back on a bunch of things, and you have to learn to chill the hell out and just like. No one wants to work with a psycho, which I, <laughs> I, I can, I can be a pretty fiery personality when I get going. So I, I know that about myself and have to tamp that down to, you know, work better in group situations, but it just, I, I worry about the networking thing is like where the grind it's, it's grinding for grinding sake. Right. It's what's the point? Where are you trying to get to? Also, at some point you got to turn it off because you just can't, nothing's worse than like, the dude still on the grind with like his third Grammy. And you're like, dude, you got to like enjoy some of this stuff at some point. <laughs> we, we, no one wants to have a heart attack at 52. Like just chill out. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, Man, serious. it's, um, talking about like, you know, we, we use words like networking and hustle and grind and, yeah. and all those things. And, and those aren't necessarily, you know, bad concepts, but, like you, yeah. like you said, they don't, they, none of those words and none of those, uh, habits speak to the fact that this is relationships. Like all of those words should be replaced with the phrase building relationships. Right. Just well, and so much, I, I, I actually really appreciate about drummers specifically because it doesn't seem to be the way with guitar players. Guitar mm-hmm. players are territorial as hell. Um, <laughs> I've always, especially my favorite drummers, especially the guys that I grew up, you know, mentors of mine that are 10 or so years older than me that, which is, you know, they taught me, they were cool to me, which is why I try to pass on stuff to people 10 years behind me who are trying to do this because, you know, someone, I didn't wake up knowing everything like Mm -hmm. someone taught me. So it's it's not mine to hold, you know, someone else needs that info. Um, There's just, yeah, there's, there's just a connotation to, what I think people assume grinding is not being all up in people's DMS. Like, Hey, what do you got going on? What's, what's going on? It's like, but that's not to say you don't try to keep a good mental picture of what everyone in your circle has going on. Yeah. Because what happens if, Oh, uh, I have a family emergency and need to sub a Misty gig. I, I should, I, I try to know like, okay, my buddy, Rob Humphreys, he was doing this gig. So I know he's probably booked. I like, I try to have a, a reasonable idea of what everybody in the circle is doing. So if I get a call that I can't do, or if I get a, asked for a reference, it's like, Oh, this dude's around or this, this person is a, you know, Oh, you need a bass player. Here's three names. They're all great. You know, like it, it's, I, I think it's just people, you know, can tend to seem like if I just, if I find the right person and talk to them enough, this is going to happen to me. And it's yeah. just, it's like, no, just be available, be around, be an easy hang. Yep. As much as you can. It, most of the stuff takes care of itself. Yeah. You are the... It is, and have it, you're playing where it needs to be. Because if you walk in and you're a great hang and you walk in and crush the session, you're going to get called. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, you're going to force them to call you. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, 
how you have to approach it. And that, I mean, th- and they're not going to call you because of one of those things. They're gonna they're gonna call you because of all of those things right. put together. The total fit for sure. Referred to uh, Misty a, a couple times. Um, talk yeah. talk about even though it's you know probably kind of on hold <laughs> right now. Um, what what has the been on hold and it's very on hold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what's been your experience playing with Father John Misty? Because I know he's a drummer as well, right? I, I I love playing drums for drummers, man. It's the best thing in the world because they have the vocabulary to tell you what they want. Yeah. It's like it's like you don't hear a lot of like you know on that bridge. Could it be like? like josh was sitting hey can you play just play this be like yeah man and and he's the 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 reason we work so well is he has such a great balance of i bet he's only given me eight or nine notes in five years so when he gives me notes he's like hey can the 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 fill go in from the second pre-course into that chorus can that just be the fill from the record like yeah of course totally man like no problem like because it's if i was being micromanaged it might feel a little more you know, like dictatorial or something, you know, yeah. someone has some pressure, but it, just because, well, that, and I know he's look, when you, when you work with a songwriter on that level, you don't tell them about songs. Mm-hmm. It's like, he wants a thing a certain way. It's for a reason. And like, he knows, he knows this better than, than I do. And yeah, man, I'm here to serve. Let's do the thing, you know? Yeah. Talking about, I, I, love, I love working for with drummers. I think it's the best. And- I would only do it the choice like from now on i'm just working with father john and and ringo star and phil collins and and the ghost of (laughs) levon um but about songwriting like how much i mean obviously the like you've, you've done a lot of work in the in the ccm world and that's a very you know songwriting sort of driven genre um but what has playing with Father John taught you about, uh, you know, the interaction between a song and your drum part? It's, you know, some of his tunes are like very, the drum part will be like fundamental to the song. Like if you, like uh, there's on the first record, there's a tune, uh, Only Son of a Ladies Man, who the, the song is just like a ostinato tom part the entire time, but it's it's the same pattern. And it's one of those things like if you mute the drums, the song doesn't make sense. Hmm. Is that the song? It, it'd be like if you took My Sharona and muted the drums. It's just like, well, that's the whole song. You know, like it'd be in the air tonight and you mute the drums. It's just like, you know. So a lot of his songs are like the drums are like a featured instrument. So it's about, you know, re- basically reciting the part so that everybody can play to it. Um, and And otherwise, it's just, it's given me an appreciation for the economy of drum parts. His, I mean, if you listen to to the records, they're so dense, both both content wise, lyrically, but then also, I mean, they're seven and eight minute songs, and they've got, you know, three different orca- orchestra passes on them. I mean, like there there are some of the, the tunes on, on pure comedy were like, we were chaining together four Studer tape machines to get enough tracks. I mean, Jesus. like it's it, it it's the the albums are so dense and so arranged and so thought out that you really have to pick your spots. And it, it, it becomes, you know, most things it's like, 
if you're on a pop pop rock session, it's like, okay, I'm going to get a fill to enter the tune. I'm going to get one at the end. And probably the, the middle of the double chorus is going to be a highlight spot or maybe like something on the bridge. Right. That's going to be the spot. It's time for the drums to make something happen, right? Whereas like that, there are times like I don't play fills going into a chorus because there just aren't space for them. Mm-hmm. So I'll like mark it with a downbeat crash and that's it. But it's that he, it, a lot of it being in that situation and, and working with a band that big has taught me a lot about like, play less and make it matter more. Mm. Like when you're going to do something, really do it. Don't, don't half-ass ideas, but also like probably use them half as much as you think you should. It's like every, you know, there are tunes on, on a couple, you know, that I worked on for, for the records that, I mean, it's literally kicks in their hat the entire time with no deviation. And that's the, that's what's appropriate and musical in that context. Right. You know, so I think it's just, I, I, I already feel like I, I've had enough guidance early on with good producers to start kind of thinking outside the realm of just the drums mm-hmm. when I'm doing drums. Um, but certainly that got kicked into high gear working with Josh and working with specifically Jonathan Wilson, the, the dude who produces the records and, and Bobby, who's also working on producing the records are, are guys that have this understanding of, you know, the economy of parts and just, if, if the part isn't working, just write a better part or do, usually it's just remove part, remove things from it, yep. simplify it, and it better. Like, yeah, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I've had an engineer or a producer tell me to play fewer ghost notes every set, it's like, hey, can you play just can you cleaner on the snare? You know, like yeah. just hit two and four. Us drummers, <laughs> us, us drummers love Matt Chamberlain, but but Matt Chamberlain, when he's in those circumstances, knows to only play two and four and not play a ton of ghost notes because that's what the producer wants. You know, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Just thinking like that, is it, you know a drummer may sit down and play a really ghost note heavy part and it may feel good and they, but, and they may not even be realizing they're doing it, but a producer is going to go like, Hey man, stop doing that. And so you have to be able to go like, all right, and remove that and not have it feel weird and not have it sound different. And, you know. I'm I'm thinking about my own playing and just, you know, uh, how many times, especially in a live situation, I've played, you know, a uh, uh, just kind of half-assed mindless fill that, that didn't need to be there. Um, and you know, the, the older I get and the more sessions I do and, um, I'm, I'm just paying more and more attention to like how much space my drum part has taken up. Um, and it, it reminds me of a conversation I had with God, I can't remember who it was, but he was talking about, um, the, you know, the sonic space that your drum sound takes up in the mix. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's easy to get carried away on on both fronts like with the the fills and the ghost notes and just the amount of space that your part is taking up but then also with the sounds like you may come across some some big huge cool sounds that you're like oh holy shit this is great but it's right. just it's too much for the mix for the song and you got to you got to come up with something way more spartan <laughs> yeah just just you, you in have, your tones yeah you you might have come up with some some drums that sound like you know, the first Mars Volta record or something sound like enormous and incredible. And then, but if you're playing on an Angel Olsen song, it, it's not the, you know, like it's not appropriate. You know, it's, it's a lot of it's about, you're right. It's not just the amount of notes you're playing, but like if the song is 130 BPM, maybe the wide open snare drum that has a two second decay is not the one <laughs> in a fast tempo, you know, like that kind of thing too. It's like, you got to think like, or if a song is 62 BPM and super slow, maybe but your kick is only on downbeats maybe make that kick last a long time you right. know like so they don't feel the need to play more notes you know like it's 
it's all it is a balance of like finding finding the the, the appropriate amount of space for the drums to take up and that's, i love that's that idea of like and the, and the tones i love that idea of getting longer tones and and letting that force you to play fewer notes yeah, I've never really thought of that sort of inverse relationship in the studio. Like if but. you listen to any, if you listen to any, like anything Jay Bellarose has ever played on, <laughs> uh, and and obviously his like you know shaker brushes on the Rolling Bombers forty Slingerland thing that stuff's amazing. But if you go back and listen to like that first Paula Cole record that was huge that he played on, that has Where Have All the Cowboys and I Don't Want to Wait and all this, those those songs feel so damn good. And you just listen to the kick patterns and it's like, boom, boom, <laughs> because using like a bass drum with a full front head and it sounds incredible. So it, they, they obviously made the choice of like, this bass drum sounds so good. Let's give it some room to, to right, operate. Right. He's going to hear it. He's going to hit it once and you're going to hear it for the whole measure. Like it's yeah. good. <laughs> Dance like a butterfly and drink like a fish. Bent on taking demons down with only this, and I never know anyone who could lose himself in a bigger paper bag. Two things I wanted to ask you about your your Q and A podcast and the Bailey Method. Um, which I'd imagine are are kind of two two sides of of the same coin yeah, as far so, as your yeah. educational arm. Yeah. Uh, the, the podcast just came out of, I've been doing, you know, as soon as Instagram added that Q and a function, I've been, I've been doing those periodically. And, you know, uh, just again, trying to be like, I know that if I had a player I looked up to when I was coming up and I had access to like, ask that dude questions. That's, that's an incredible resource. I, you know, I would have felt like I had, so I, I'm trying to do that for people. And the podcast just came out of, it's the easiest way to answer a long form. Right. You know, if somebody goes like, like, how would you, how would you approach playing drums on this kind of song? Two paragraphs aren't maybe not going to cut it. You know, it's like, it's, it's about like, well, I'm going to listen to, you know, music that's in that world to get my head around the, the parts and the sounds. And then I'm going to, you know, like to do that, it's easier to, to take five minutes and explain it rather than type out a six page Instagram stories thing or whatever. Yeah. On your um, phone. <laughs> on a on a phone, yeah. So, so that just became a, it's just an easier format to answer longer questions. Uh, and then the the masterclass stuff, I just realized that a couple years ago there isn't. I I had yet to find any information on tuning that I thought had any basis on, in the real world. So the, the 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 like tuning tutorials I saw were not being made by people who do this. Mm -hmm. And and I think that there's and this is not obviously not to pick on anybody, but there is a level of expertise by, it's easy to tell somebody about how some, how to do something It's easy, you know, but it's another thing to have done it and then to tell someone how to do it. Um, so I, I just didn't see materials I thought would help up and coming working players being made right. by working players. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to like, I get so many recording questions let me show you how, how my drum kit sounds when I start. I'm going to take all the heads off. I'm going to rehead it from scratch. You're going to watch me in real time. So like the floor tom reheading segment is 14 minutes long hmm. because I, I feel like that's the other thing. It's not only that, uh, that I feel like it's a lot of people that maybe don't have experience in the real world. It's also, hey, you should need to re rehead your floor tom, snap cut, done. 
It's like, no, I want to see it. I think a part of learning, how, how I learn at least, there's information to be had in how long it took me. If, if you're having all kinds of problems with your floor tom and, it, and it's taking you 32 minutes to get it where it's, it needs to be, obviously there's something going wrong in there. But obviously if you're, you know, if, if you've messed with it for two minutes and can't get it, you haven't gone far enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's, so I think being able to do it in an uncut format like that and, and, and you know, answer questions as I'm going and, and show people what I'm doing kind of demystifies it. And I hope that people leave going that I'm, I'm doing way less than they think people do. Like yeah. there aren't these, I'm just, man, the drum wants to sound good. Just get out of its way and let it happen. <laughs> yeah. And then from there, I've just gone into like more, Hey, when I'm like, the, the, I'm about to release one uh, next week, the, the third one. And it's, it's literally, Hey, I got called for a song in this genre. I am going to film from like receiving the tracks to sending tracks out. And you guys just like, you're going to see what I, what I track. Then we're going to go into the computer and manipulate it. Then you see what I track as like overdubs and how I manipulate that, how I, how I set a mix, how I send it off, you know, like just there, there isn't a lot of like tutorial and like a real follow DIY. There's a lot of like, Hey, we made up this fake song that we're going to record on. Like, no, this is a client's track that I got permission for. Mm -hmm. This is a real, this is a work day and I'm filming it. You know, yeah. like this is this this world is actually like not not someone's view of it who doesn't kind of do it. And I, I think again, it, not, not not I'm not speaking about anybody in particular. I just think a lot of a lot of we we label a lot of people people experts who maybe don't have much of a resume. Right, right. Um, and I think it reinforces what you said earlier about like th- it, this is not magic. Like no, <laughs> so, you, you know, Less studio what. It's always less than you think it is. Right. It, it always is. Right. Um, it, you know, studio work and session work and recording and, and, and like, I think taking uh, and, and tuning also, like, it's, um, it takes a lot of trial and error, even by experts. Um, mm-hmm. And I think taking people through that process and just like you said, kind of pulling back the curtain of like, this is a job, this is a set of skills, this is a journey. This is not like you you buy the thing and you watch the video and now you're good. Good, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. This takes a while. Settle in. <laughs> yeah, it, it's practice like everything else. You know? Yeah, it's like yeah. Uh, um, I w- my my wife and I were were chatting the other day. And we were just talking about like when I first got the spot I was in that I got in 2016 when I got my first like commercial space. Uh, which having a commercial uh, payment in COVID times is not, <laughs> yeah, not, not good. Not <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of the reason why we, we moved and I built a spot. Um, but the, when I wasn't on the road and when I didn't have something to record, I would go in like five hours a day and just, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to play along to this, you know, Foo Fighters track and try to get that. I'm not good at the modern rock thing. I'm going to try to do my version of that. And you just practice recording just that. And obviously you're going to practice your playing in that too. So it's, it's a, you know, two birds, one stone, but the, the thought that you could just like get a call for a track, hit record and you're, you're good. It's like, you have to practice doing that so that you have the confidence to even say yes to the call. You know, like you have to know that you're able to get good sounds Yeah, and to do that. It's a lot of repute, like recording drums is not easy and it takes a lot of like, and that's, and that's why it's important for people to like, as people are going, they should absolutely, you know, clip audio and keep it in a folder. Or like, if you shoot a video, keep it and look back in a, in three weeks, I guarantee you what you're doing now sounds better than it did three weeks ago. Oh, and yeah. that will be the, it's, it's game film. It's just like sports. Like it's, it's, 
the film room is where you get better. And this is your way of kind of self-analyzing your playing. You right. Know? Nothing, nothing hides when you're recording. Like if you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're kick, if you happen to displace your kick a little late and you need to work on that, it will let you know, you'll see it in a sound file. You know, there's no, no hiding from it. For sure. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's all like of a piece of what, everything we've been talking about. It's just the, um, you know, we've, we've heard so many drummers, uh, talk about like especially before covid when the home tracking thing was getting you know more and more um common you know how many drummers have you heard say like oh yeah i can just go down the hall in my underwear and like track a you know (laughs) track some drums and send it off and that's my job and like i was i was one of the many people i think who perceived that as just like oh you just you just do it you put this shit together and you do it but I, I like that you're kind of demystifying the process of starting from scratch or starting from very little and getting to that point where you can actually walk down the hall, turn the shit on yeah. and play. Well, and I, what I, I just hope people have an appreciation for too, is it's not because like you said, these things are all connected. The same people that the same pe- person that, you know, calls you to play on the record, you might be getting a call by that person's MD to do the tour too. Like the, this, these are all connected fields, but the, yeah, man, I am I am COVID brain. <laughs> no, like we're, yeah. we're you you've you've illustrated oh, you, you've just illustrated think, the. I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I found my point. Uh, what I think it's it's easy to forget is that because this is all connected. Yes, home recording really kind of I bet took over the majority of the market starting about 2012 13. The the majority of records are made in personal studios now. Um, what you have to have an appreciation for is that I've been at this since 1998. So I didn't just like open a studio and got calls. These are people I've worked with in other contexts for the last 22 years. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's easy to feel defeated by like, well, but I'm trying to get into recording. How do you get calls? It's like, that's just, that's less of a problem of being a recording engineer player, you know, person trying to do that. And more of a problem of probably being 22 or 23 or 24 and starting out. Mm. Like it's, it's, the calls I get for this are because these are people I've worked with for years. It's yeah. not, not that I open a studio and magically I get rando calls that much. It's, it's the vast majority of work is for people that I've d- previously worked for. Yeah. It's so, it, man. It's amazing. I, I'm, I just kind of, I'm, I'm keeping, uh, I continue to reiterate this point, but like whether you're talking about, uh, you know, networking or playing or, uh, getting your room together or learning the gear or learning the, you know, the tech, like it's, it's a process. And if you know, there's no, there's no fucking shortcuts, man. And the, the, yeah. the journey is educational. The journey is enjoyable, hopefully. But, um, nope. I think especially now where like, we don't, we like, we don't know what the music industry is going to look like in two years. Um, so I think just sort of some patience and perspective and persistence on everyone's part is, is going to result in, um, more success than, um, like you said, just pushing, pushing, what do I do? What do I do? What do I, how do I, how do I do? What do I do? <laughs> yeah. You know, just, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, it's just tough. I've just, I've just watched enough, enough people who take that route kind of come and go in my career. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I know that, I, I mean, I'm sure this is a universal thing. Cause you know, uh, doesn't matter where, what market you're working in. You, there may be that player that like pops up and is willing to just work for peanuts and will do anything. And, and will just is willing to grind, grind, you know, him or herself into the ground to do the gig. And it's, 
that is a short-term plan. You have to have some self-respect. You have to go like, you know, I'm willing to do this. I'm not willing to do this. Here's my rate. If I don't get it, you have to be able to walk. You know, that that isn't to say absolutely be flexible. I'd always rather do something than not. So if someone comes to me like, hey, I'd love you to play in this track. What's your rate? Hey, it's this. Hey, I have this. It's for this thing. Like, if I'm not doing anything Tuesday, yeah, of course. Like, we can come to some, yeah, let's do it. You know? Right, um, right. But it's also like, hey, can you, can you play in this five-song EP that's going to take you you know, a week of work or four days of work. And it's, it's, if it, if the money doesn't justify blocking out a week, I just can't, you know, and you just have to learn to respect yourself to say no so that you're, but you know, that's, and it goes in hand in hand with the desperation thing. Just, just right. And it's like what you said about, you know, if you say yes to something often enough, that's what you're going to do. And that includes saying yes to, uh, less than you're worth. Totally. Yeah. And it's, and it's not, it's not at all mean spirited in any way to very politely in an email go like, that's great. I would love to be involved. Here's my rate. I've got, you know, costs built into this. Here's just what I need a day. Uh, totally no hard feelings. If you know, this one doesn't work out, if you want to work the other future, that's great. You know, like there are absolutely ways to be really nice about it, but you also, no one's going to protect you. So you have to stand up for yourself, you know, at yeah, some point. Totally. And I think and, it's and, the same, it's the same as in the live world. You know, there's just endless debate about like, you know, how much should this gig pay? How much should that gig pay? Are these, should these young people be play, playing for free and blah, blah, blah. And I think, first of all, I think that debate is bullshit, but the, the, you know, the same sort of tier system exists in the, the session world because you have a day rate that is going to be worth it to you to block out that four days to do that record. Right. And if that rate isn't worth it for somebody like you, it's probably going to be worth it for someone like me who's a year into this. And <laughs> yeah, totally. it's, that's, that's totally how it works. I mean, and that's, that's how, I mean, I, I honest to God know that I am obviously my little circle. I'm their first call guy. I work on a bunch of stuff with the same people over and over and over, right. but I know a lot of the other stuff that comes in randomly where I'll do a single track for somebody here or there. Mm -hmm. I know that for a fact it's either because their friend couldn't fit in or is on tour or something doing something or like they didn't have the budget to get, you know, who I think that that's the, <laughs> I, I I'm not offended by it. My job is to go like, here, I'm going to, I'm going to make you glad you didn't pay that money. And here's your trade. You know, like my track is as good as anybody's that. And there's, there's a certain amount of like healthy confidence or, you know, even, even to the point of, as long as it's not combative with other people, healthy arrogance can be, can be good. Because again, who, if you're not confident, if you're not looking out for yourself, no one's going to. So if, and if you don't think what you're doing is good, then what, what are we even doing here? Yeah. Like this is, you have to believe you have a voice on the instrument and you are good. That, that, which is why there's no plan. There's no plan B because I'm put on earth to play drums. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I am the best at by a mile. Everything else I would be, a mediocre middle management dude in a cubicle. Like I'm a very <laughs> mediocre. I, I play and record drums. So like, but just, you know, have a, I guess uh, the whole, it's, it's all rolled into the whole half, like a good vision of where you want to go. And it, like the kind of things you're going to put up with and the kind of things you're not. And, and, and like, and honestly people will, and this isn't, when I was younger and heard people my age now talk like this, I used to go like, Oh, must be nice for you. You can say no to work because, and, and you're absolutely right. Cause that's what I thought at 25 when I heard my 40 year old friend say this, but hopefully if you're still doing this, when you're 25, you're still at it at 40, you will have learned those lessons of like, Oh, I see the signs of when someone's going to be a nightmare to work with. Mm -hmm. or like, Oh, I, I can smell, I can smell it that I shouldn't be in this situation. Like right. I just, there's a, you just learn people. And you just like, you learn to protect yourself. You learn to, to say and you yes. Learn, to you, you learn talent too. Like aside from the money or the personalities or whatever, like, you know, I'm, I'm at a point in my career where, you know, if 
if you have the opportunity to sort of uh, attach yourself to someone, even if it's for one gig, um, mm-hmm. I'm 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 more discerning than I used to be as far as the talent that I'm working with, right? And if somebody's if somebody's just okay, then I like I don't I don't need that in my life. I don't need okay in my life. And you're gonna put up with less. Right. The, you know that's the. That's the, I mean, it's the old rule of threes. The like, you know, a gig has to be, it's the, the hang the money and the tunes. Yeah. You know, it's, if I got a call by, now I, I have a buddy who's worked for him, so I know this not to be the case, but if I got called for Elton John and if he was a disaster, he's a very nice dude. If he was a disaster to work with, the money in the gig is going to make, I will put up with a disaster for that gig. Mm-hmm. I will put up with, with as much diva as you want to be because I'm playing with Elton John, those songs, and I'm probably getting paid a lot of money to do it. Whereas, like, if that sort of thing, if you're playing five spot for 125 bucks and the artist is that to deal with, you don't need that. Like, and they'll burn their way. They'll do five one-offs with different players and they'll burn their way through the town and that'll be it for them. We see, I mean, I don't even live in Nashville when I see it happen. Right. So, like, <laughs> just see it happen at a hotel cafe in LA. So, it, it's, again, it's the, I think you're totally right. It's like, no know what's worth putting up with or not. Yeah. And now as we've talked about on the podcast before, there's, there's a fourth factor because it's got to be like good hang, good tunes, good money and not die from COVID. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, it goes without saying. (laughs) I'm not not looking to play any, uh, uh, drive, drive in shows in fields right now. (laughs) I did one of those. I did one of those, an outdoor thing and it was weird. Probably don't need to do it again. I, I, I haven't, uh, um, I haven't talked to my couple of buddies have done it. I haven't talked to anybody yet. What is, is the vibe as strange as it seems like it would be? It's strange, but it's not bad. And, and the drive-in show that I played was in August, I believe. And it was the first and to date, one of the only live gigs that I've played since yeah. March. So like we were starved for that, uh, that Jones yeah. You know, so getting up on stage with other human beings and playing songs for other human beings out there, even though they were like mostly in their cars, um, right. it, it, it was weird, but there was enough of that Jones that it was cool. Right. Well, and you made me think of something when you, uh, you're talking about the, the in-person sessions I did. I haven't played drums in front of people. Yeah. Like people in a space other than those three times in a couple years, which is bizarre to think about. Mm, man, or yeah. You, basically yeah in insane yeah i i know the next time the next time i play in front of people because i've just been in like studio world i'm gonna be a just a, a, a aggressive mess and i'm gonna be 30 percent too hard it's like percent too much right <laughs> i haven't adrenaline in a long time it's gonna be weird right and just hugging right. like hugging everybody way too many times oh, it's gonna be, <laughs> first rehearsal back's gonna be really fun but oh man we're a long way away i mean at least before if, if for, for any younger folks, you know, listening to this, uh, I am of the opinion that the touring world will bounce back relatively easy because look, I hate, go- I, I, I do it for a living. So I hate going to live shows, just the loud, the people I'm just not, that's not my deal. Same. I would, I would go to any live show tomorrow. Yeah. It doesn't, I don't see big and rich tomorrow. I don't even, <laughs> like, I, I don't even care. I go see literally Florida, Florida Georgia line, Florida, Georgia line. Uh, now we're now we're pushing, but, uh, <laughs> like, but you know, I I am so jonesing for a live anything with people. Like, man, if if I could go to a basketball game and it was safe tomorrow, I'd I'd, I'd be at the gate. You know, when they open the doors, it's so the 
the drive, I mean, clearly people want to do stuff. So as soon as we're, we, we get the clear, I have no issue that, no worries that like Live Nation doesn't know how to make money. Oh, for like, sure. They'll be, Golden Voice will be fine. Don't worry. I've heard that Go. Live Nation has been like quietly buying up venues all over the country yeah. that would have otherwise gone under. And See, that's, that's the interesting part is a band like ours is going to be more or less fine because we play we play sheds. So they're all, it's like the Toyota music center of Dallas, you know, whatever. They all have corporate sponsors, all these giant places. I'm sure they got PPE loans. I'm sure they're good. Um, it's the, it's the, the bands that play like the 200 cap, the 400 cap, the 500 cap, like band 500 and below. I can't imagine too many of those venues made it because we didn't do anything to protect them. So well, that's really, that's is, kind is of what our, I've heard is that li- like live nation has been buying a lot of those places. I, right. That's that, and that would make sense. I would totally buy that because that's the the bad news. Obviously, is oh cool, corporations own every touring gig now. It's a double edged sword. That said, at least bands that size have will have places to play because if it was up to independent contract, they would all be gone yeah. because they they haven't made money in ten months. It just is what it. And can you imagine you know paying the rent on a building in like New York? <sighs> like if you. If you own Mercury Lounge and you're paying a bit, like no one can afford that. Yeah. Like what's they the could, what's the, you know they could the they could barely like? afford it with like thirty dollar covers and two drink minimums. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, so I I I I worry about the five hundred and under places. Yeah. But that would say I I would absolutely buy that the powers that be are buying them all up trying to. Yeah, <laughs> trying to own that part of the tour. And too. when you when you get down to it, I mean, live live music isn't going anywhere. It's like, how long has live music been around? How long has it been an integral part of human life? Like, it's you know, it's not going anywhere. It's going to come back. Live, live music and live sports. Don't worry about them ever. They'll be fine till the, <laughs> the end of time because they're the they're the experiences you can't you can't fake. Right. Like if you you know. Even if for those of us that aren't the biggest U2 fans, if you drop somebody into U2, you know, a U2 concert during like Unforgettable Fire, they're bawling their eyes out because it's a it's, a, it's an emotional experience of the human collective, right? Yeah. So like, and and when you're tearing, when you go to your Ohio State Michigan game, it's the same thing. It's like those you can't view that through a phone and have that connection and stuff. So I I don't worry about music or or live sports coming back. The second they can be back, they will be back. I think so too. Well, man, thank you for talking. It was, it was, I had a great time talking with you and, and I just want to commend you for being such an open book uh, on Instagram about everything you're doing in the studio. As soon as I started following you, it's just like every day, there's just like thing after thing after thing of like, you can do this, check this out. Here's what I do. Like you're, you're super uh, generous with uh, your, your knowledge about what you do there. Um, And it's, it's really helpful to me. I think it's helpful to a lot of people. Where can people get the Bailey method? Uh, If you go to drichardbailey.com or my Instagram has links and you you can find it all through there and all that. Cool. Cool. Also Instagram.com drichardbailey. Awesome. Thanks for talking, man. Anytime, man. Thanks to Dan. What a great resource he is. Once again, he's offering Working Drummer Podcast listeners a 25% discount on the Bailey Method, his three-part video tutorial on tuning and recording. drichardbailey.com is the place to go and use the promo code WDP. Thanks also to David Blacker and Air Gigs. If you want instant access to all seven segments we're featuring with him, donate at patreon.com slash workingdrummer. Next week, Matthew Krause will be bringing you his interview with Nashville drummer and producer Josh Day, who has worked with John Oates, Sarah Bareilles, and Jennifer Nettles. 
Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.